I've titled today's message, The Great Fall from Grace. Kind of an intriguing title, um, but I assure you the message lives up to it. I've split it into two parts. I could have probably split it into 12, but we're just going to cover two parts. Um, This week's really just an icebreaker. We're just going to break into this. I'm really going to set the stage. uh, And as we get into next week, uh, it's going to get a little bit heavier uh, than it is uh, this week. You know, out of all the stories that are found in the Bible, for me personally, the particular story that we are going to look at today, this this story was one of the most impactful, most instrumental stories that I ever read in my life that, that had an effect in my life transformation. And what I mean by my life transformation is this. I grew up in a good Christian home, good Christian family, good Christian church. All of these things, I had these things as... I began to get older and began to get into business and so forth. Uh, the world had placed its blueprint in front of me. The, the world and, and what, what it means to be successful. And the things that I'm supposed to aspire to, to gain wealth and so on and so forth. And I just naturally, slowly, over, I ended up taking the world's blueprint and focusing on that. Never at the time did I deny Jesus at that time. I didn't deny him. I would have proudly professed him. But make no mistake... I was not living for him until one day the fire of the Holy Spirit came upon me. And I was just living in sin, living for myself, covetousness, idolatry. These were my things. One day, and the best way to describe this is that it's like somebody poured spiritual jet fuel into my soul and lit a match. Boom! One day I literally turned to Yeshua. And I never looked back. But what was interesting, when this happened, and it was completely supernatural, things started happening. I started experiencing things I had never experienced. Desires I never had. Never experienced at this level. I was now experiencing on a very intense level. More than that, I started to devour the Word at a rate that was astronomical. I probably read more scripture in one month than I did in my entire life. I couldn't get enough of the word. It was so powerful. It was so good. That psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. I experienced that on a very, very intimate level. All I cared about was Yeshua. I wanted to know him. Every time I looked at the clouds, I looked at the trees. I was driven to worship Yeshua. Everything changed. One of the most significant things that happened to me as I'm devouring this word, scales start to fall from my eyes. And I start to see things that I've never seen before. See, I had a bubble that I lived in. And everything within that bubble, and I'm not talking about the world and the things that I was doing in the world, I'm talking about my upbringing, I'm talking about my Christian faith that I identified with. As I'm going through Scripture, my world begins to crumble around me. Terrifying. Best way to describe this, to help you appreciate what I was experiencing, is through the words of Morpheus. Now for those of you who are not familiar with Morpheus. He is not a Greek philosopher. Okay? 
The name actually derives from the Greek, but he's a character in a movie. Rarely do you ever hear me get up here and get involved in pop culture. I don't do it. Today, I'm going to make an exception because what this movie was about, some of the things that transpired in this movie captivate what I experienced on a spiritual level when I gave my heart to Yeshua with everything I had, with this burning passion inside. Well, as the movie goes, there's a movie that came out in the 90s. It's called The Matrix, and it was big. Everybody was like, ooh, it's a not real manly movie, you know. We all came out of there, and we were kung fu experts. But so really manly movie. What was, it, what was most impressive about the movie to me which was ironic. It was not the cinematography. It was not all the the latest things that they had designed in Hollywood to wow their audience. It was the plot. It was the storyline. And basically the storyline is is everybody in the movie, they're living in the matrix. They're living in a false illusion. And what they conceive, what they believe is real, but it's not real. The two main characters of the movie, you have Morpheus, who knows the truth. He's a bringer of truth. He lives in total reality. And then you have the other character, Neo. Neo doesn't live in reality. He lives in a false reality. Everything he knows to be true, everything he's touching and tasting that he believes is real, is an illusion. One of the most notable moments in the movie is right at the beginning. Because Morpheus is just giving Neo a taste of what reality really is. And Neo doesn't know how to handle it. He doesn't know how to do it. His world is coming apart. Everything he thought was true starts to fall apart. And then this notable moment in history. Morpheus comes. He sits Neo down. He holds out his hands. And in each hand is a pill. And this is what he says. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. Think about that statement. He offers him the blue pill. You can take this and you can believe whatever you want. In other words, you can continue on in that life that you've been living, that you believe is it's, it's only a perceived reality. You can have that. Take the blue pill. But... You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In other words, and he actually says it in the movie, what I offer you is truth. An amazing moment. Let me explain to you why this is so powerful. As the fire of the Holy Spirit is working in my life, and I'm devouring the Word, I'm starting to see things in my life, things that I held to that were true, that I cherished that I grew up with in my Christian realm. And they started to fall apart. The Word of God started to pick them apart. And it was devastating to me. It was just so amazing. I could look back and look back at my upbringing, look back at the church, and I would tell you with my own eyes, I see it, it looks good. Isn't this amazing? Everybody's doing good. The condition, the state of the church is beautiful. And then I hold this up. And then I go, oh... God help us. Because I look through the filter of this lens and things are totally different. It's just like in the movie The Matrix. When Neo sees the reality, it's all dark clouded. You go to The Matrix, everything's bright and sunny. Everybody's smiling. Everything's okay. 
Reality is so much different. And when you go to Scripture, this is what happens. The particular story we're going to look at today is the red pill. It's the red pill. And it's the story of the life of King Saul. See, King Saul believed he was doing things right. You would ask King Saul, and you're going to see this, King Saul believed that his ways that he was walking in, he was keeping the commandments of the Lord. He was making good decisions. When the reality was, he was not. He was actually committing rebellion against God. The very thing he thought he was doing was just the opposite. You ask the Lord God of Israel how he saw Saul, he saw him through the red pill, through truth, through reality. And you ask Saul, he had a completely different picture of what the Lord had. I am telling you something, people. You need to go to the Word because this is the eyes of God. Do you want to see your life, the innermost hidden things, those things that you hide from everybody else, these dark and wicked thoughts that you carry? Torah, the Scriptures, the Tanakh, they will expose them. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Allow it to move you in mighty ways. Proverbs 21, verse 22, we read, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. My goodness, Solomon knows what he's talking about. He isn't kidding. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. It's amazing. You can get ten pastors in a room with ten different ideologies and ten different theologies. Every one of them will go home and say to themselves, I'm right. And they're all wrong. What do you take away? What do you take away from this proverb? Let me dumb it down for you. Let me simplify it. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter. It only matters what God thinks. He will weigh you in the balance. And He's not going to weigh you in the balance according to your false perception of how you see yourself. Right? Before we get started today... I want to take you to the book of Romans. And it's something that I did. I, I, I continuously do this. You've heard me quote this verse constantly. I did it in, in, with regard to the book of Esther. We're going to do it again today because we're going to pick up on something that Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3. Paul comes to the Philippians and he says, the, the things that I write to you, the same things that I write to you over and over again, these things are not tedious to you. But for you, it is safe. In other words, there are particular concepts that I keep playing over and over again because they need to go, they need to be embedded in your heart. This particular concept is imperative for you because this concept will change the way that you look at Tanakh. It will change your approach to the Tanakh dramatically. And this is what Paul says in Romans 15. Whatever things were written before, written before he means the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. In the Greek, didaskalia, it means instruction, it means doctrine. In fact, you look at every time this word is used, it's typically translated doctrine. It's the very words that Paul spoke in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture, meaning the Tanakh, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction, and righteousness. In other words, the story that we are going to cover Today, it is not a history lesson. It's not just recorded history. This story is crying out to us today. 
like the trumpet blast. It is prophetic in nature. It is relevant. It is applicable to us. And it has been preserved for you. It has been preserved for you as a warning. So with this understanding, I want to break into the life of King Saul. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Samuel. And just give you a little backdrop. Samuel is the judge of Israel. In fact, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that he judged Israel all the days of his life. Well, going back there, Israel starts noticing something about Samuel. He's getting older. And they're getting concerned. Because Samuel's two sons, Yoel and Aviah, they do not follow Samuel's ways. They've been corrupted. These, these two sons of his were judging in Beersheba. And they had become corrupted. And the children of Israel, the elders of Israel, they noticed, well, Samuel's getting old. So they go to him, Samuel, you're getting old. We're getting concerned. Your sons don't follow in your ways. Make us a king. Make us a king. We want to be like all the other nations around us. And you can actually go and read that text. Their, their proclamation, they want to be like all the nations around them. Make us a king to go before us to fight our battles. And so what does God do? Israel has requested for a king, and God obliges them. This is where Saul comes in to the picture. And as we come to chapter 9 in 1 Samuel, we get a little background in regard to Saul. Chapter 9, verse 1, we read, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorat, the son of Aphiach, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power, he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay, so we, we get some background in regard to Saul, in regard to his physical stature, in regard to his genealogy. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. And when you looked at him, he is exactly what you would expect to see in a king. He is glorious to behold. He is the most handsome guy in the entire nation. And not just that, he towers all the men of Israel. I mean, you would have looked at him and said, truly, this is the king. He's awesome. Moving on to verse 15, dropping down. Now the Lord... Uh, had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people. It's interesting. What are one of the main criterias of the expectation of what Saul would do for the people of Israel, for God's people? Save. This will come into play as we get into next week. It will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Moving on to verse 17. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. The first thing that you need to identify right here, it is critically imperative that we identify this. Saul was called of God. He was called by the Lord. Critically important to identify, especially considering the fact that 
we are actually going to be looking at Saul's life as a prophetic warning to all the believers today. Which, interestingly enough, can I ask? Every believer that confesses Yeshua as the Messiah, they have been what? They have been called. Called. This is a fact. Yeshua's own words in John chapter 6. No one comes unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody confesses that Yeshua is Lord, believing that in their heart, and believing that God raised him from the dead without the Father making that happen. The Father has called every single believer just as Saul was called. Very same way. However, you know, just because you're called, it doesn't mean that you get in. Just because you're called, it doesn't mean you are guaranteed to go through the gates of Shemaim. You Let me take you to the Apocrypha. It has some interesting commentary on how narrow the path is. Second Estrus, chapter 8, verse 1. He answered me and said, The Most High made this world for the sake of many, but the world to come for the sake of only a few. The path is narrow. Now, does this statement sound familiar? It should, because these are the very words Yeshua spoke himself. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The simple point I'm trying to make here is that while it may be true that we are called, and let me preface, the calling is authentic. There's no question about that. Even though we are called, our calling is authentic, and Saul was no doubt called, and there's no question, and you'll see this as we go on, his calling is authentic. It doesn't mean we're getting in. It doesn't mean Saul's going to get in. The calling is the beginning. What you do with the life you are given will depict whether or not you make good on that calling or you make bad. Whether you stand in grace or you fall far from grace. Moving on in our story as we come to chapter 10, the Lord instructs Samuel to anoint Saul king over Israel. And we see this. Verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. What is happening? Samuel is anointing Saul as king. And kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now, just to be clear on this, Samuel is telling Saul, he's confessing, this is only happening because the Lord God of Israel has commanded it to be so. You've been called. This is the only reason Samuel is performing this act. So we find Samuel, he anoints Saul, king over Israel. But guess what? That's not the end of it. Samuel goes on to prophesy over Saul, telling Saul that when he departs from him, he's going to run into all these various people, and they're going to say and they're going to do particular things to him. He actually prophesies over Saul right at this moment. But the last group of people that Samuel mentions that Saul is going to run into is of special note. And I say this because something amazing is going to happen to King Saul. And this is what is recorded. In verse 5, After that you shall come, this is Samuel prophesying to Saul, After that you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, 
meaning the hill of God, with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Awesome thing to experience. Saul's going to experience this, but it gets better. It goes on in verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. I want to stop right here. Because this needs to be noted. Something miraculous happens to Saul. What happened? He's not just anointed with the anointing oil by Samuel. No, as he goes, he receives the holy anointing from the living God. An anointing made without hands, if you will. Saul was literally had the spirit of the living God poured out on him. Let me ask you a question. The believers of the new covenant, to the Jew first and to the Gentile, as we see the book of Acts unfold, what is happening to the Jewish people? The spirit of the living God is being poured out upon them. What happens to the Gentiles as the message goes out to the Gentiles? The spirit of the living God is being poured out on all those who confess Yeshua. Amazing. So here we can come to modern day. All the believers that confess Yeshua, that come into the faith, they receive this anointing. What did Saul receive? He received the anointing. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And look at this. And you will prophesy with them. Any question to know that this is authentic? It is authentic because the manifestation of power was evident. You read about 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? You, look, you read that and there's all these gifts of the Spirit. That when the Spirit comes upon us, we're hands and feet, we're head, we're toes, we're all these different body parts, and all these different gifts will be manifested. Wisdom, knowledge, discernment, prophecy. It's an actual power manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Paul's anointing was authentic. This is where I'm going with this. It is truly authentic. You will prophesy with them. So he's going to prophesy among the prophets. And I, I, we're not going to get into this today. Uh, I didn't put this up here. But a proverb actually got started. Because of this event, when Saul did this, they said, the people witnessed it. And they said, is Saul among the prophets? Because there was witnessing to his prophesying. Powerful. So you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. I ask you. And I can tell you from my own experience and any other believer who is authentic, when you experience the power of the Holy Spirit, it will transform you. You will be turned into another man or woman. Your desires will completely change. The things you lusted for in the world, you would despise them. You will hate them. You want to run away from them because of the love of Yeshua, because of the sacrifice, the appreciation that you have for your master. For your king. It changes everything. We become transformed. There's a renewing of the heart. Again, I'm beating the horse here. In every respect, what Saul is experiencing is 110% authentic. It's evidenced right here. And then he goes on in verse 7. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands. For God is with you. No kidding. When you see this powerful anointing coming, you're prophesying, you're turned into another man. There's no question God is with you. When you, as children of the new covenant, come in, confess Yeshua, you become sons and daughters of the living God. God is with you. God is with you. It's authentic. And just to further put this into perspective, 
to show you the power of what is being conveyed here, of what Saul actually experienced and what he received, I want to take you to Ephesians 1. I could take you to many different passages to prove this. But I just want to take you here so that you can see the reality of what is spoken. Ephesians 1.13. In him, Paul is talking about Yeshua, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is what happens. There's a ceiling. You are marked. The Holy Spirit, there's no question, the Holy Spirit is the very mark of God. And what does that mark signify? We continue. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory? You think about that. The Holy Spirit is proof, it is evidence, that we are entering into the kingdom of heaven. Let's do a little recap. Let's look at Saul's bio, what what he has going on. Number one, we know Saul was called of God. One thing I know for sure, every believer that is coming, that is confessing Yeshua, the Jew and the Gentile, they're called by God. There's no question. Number two, we know that Saul was anointed. And it wasn't a fabrication. It wasn't a pretend anointing. It was real. And the manifestation was real. It was authentic. Just as when the authentic believers in Yeshua come in and they receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit starts manifesting the Spirit all around the people, the people see the evidence of the fruit of their life, the evidence of the change. There's no question about it. Saul had it. Believers have it. We're drawing parallels here. Number three, we know Saul prophesied. This will be very important as we get into next week. He prophesied. Now, as we continue, you're going to notice that Saul is instructed by Samuel to do something. And pay very close attention because this is pivotal to the story. This is the pivotal moment. He's being commanded by Samuel to do something. Verse 8, chapter 10. You shall go down before me in Gilgal. And surely I will come down to you and offer Burnt offerings. I want to stop. Notice it doesn't say, Saul, you will be offering burnt offerings. He goes down and he says, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings. This is Samuel. He makes very clear, nothing ambiguous, uh, amb- ambiguous here. And make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. Wait. Seven days you are to wait. The time that is given here is extremely significant. The number you need to pay attention to, seven is the number of fulfillment, a number of completion, a number of time to be completed. In other words, Samuel's really saying, you shall wait until the time is completed, until the time of fulfillment has come. Perfect example is creation is not six days, creation is what? It is seven days. Creation was established, fulfilled, completed. The mark of seven. You think about festivals like Pesach. Pesach is fulfilled, it is completed upon seven days. You think of the time of consecration for the priests. What is the time of fulfillment, of completion? Seven days. You think about Miriam when she was cast out of the camp. She was cast out for seven days to the time of completion and then brought back in. So, Very instrumental to pick up on 
these things that are being commanded. Now, with these specific instructions, there's one thing I want to add before we continue. Please note that what Saul was just commanded is not the commandment of Samuel. Not the commandment of Samuel. This is the commandment of the living God. This needs to be noted. It's going to become very, very important as we continue. So, with this command that Saul was given, how does Saul do in keeping the command and waiting upon the Lord? Well, as we jump ahead to chapter 13 and verse 5, we read the following. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. Now listen to this. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. I don't care how you cut it. If you were even to take this description today, and you were to plop the Philistines at the borders of Israel, 30,000 chariots. I'm talking old school chariots. Okay? 6,000 horsemen and people which is in the sand of the sea. Even to this day with Iron Dome, modern day technology, Israel would be completely discombobulated. They'd be in terror. Put it back in the time of Israel. Put it back in context, the cultural context of the day. This you might as well be the entire world, every person in the world coming against Israel. And this is, this, is, this is the atmosphere. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beit Aven. And moving on to verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over uh, the Jordan to the land of Gad and, and Gilead. As, far, uh, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. What's the situation? What's the environment here? Scary beyond all reason. I mean, try to put yourself, try to put yourself in Saul's shoes. It is scary beyond all reason. The Philistines have amassed a massive army. One purpose, for one reason, to come and kill you. They are coming to kill Israel. This is the atmosphere that Saul is faced with. Jumping ahead to verse 8. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Three things to make special note of. Number one, a massive army has amassed against Saul. Number two, Saul's looking for Samuel. He's not seeing him. He's starting to get freaked out. If that weren't enough, well, now the people are abandoning him. They're abandoning him. They're scattering from him. How does Saul respond? We go to verse 9. So Saul said, Being a, uh, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he, notice it's not Samuel, and he offered the burnt offering. Going to verse 10. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Now, if you know anything about Samuel, you'll get to pick up on this better next week. Samuel loved Saul. He 
loved him. He cherished him. And he is mortified by what his eyes are seeing. Because Samuel told him to wait. And yet when he comes up, he sees Saul offering to the Lord. What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Going to verse 12. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Listen to this. Therefore, I felt compelled. He felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Saul's presented with a situation that in every respect appears to be completely hopeless. The entire world is crashing down upon him. He's terrified. The people have abandoned him. Samuel's not coming to him. Rather than holding the line and obeying the word of the Lord, Saul is compelled to take matters into his own hands. He seeks to honor the Lord but he's doing it according to the dictates of his own heart. And here's the problem. It was actually to the detriment of a commandment. See, that's when you know you're operating according to the dictates of your own heart, when you're doing something, and yet it's to the detriment of a plain commandment of the living God. It's horrible. Saul doesn't wait for Samuel. More importantly, he doesn't wait for the Lord. Because that's really what was happening here. Saul was to wait upon the Lord. He should have held the line. But he caves to the fears. He caves to the pressure. This is what the fear of the world is going to do to you. If you allow it. You allow the fear of the world to control you. To control your theology, your thinking. You're going to end up just like Saul. To say that this is... An important lesson for the church today would be a gross understatement. How many of us, those of us who profess Yeshua as Lord, and we've been called by God, we've experienced an authentic move of God in our lives, the Holy Spirit, how many of us are going to falter at that defining moment? It's a scary question. It's a question you need to ask yourself. The believers in this nation, I'm going to tell you this right now, the believers in this nation are about to experience a similar scenario to King Saul. Very similar. Look at the headlines that we're reading these days. The first one, government tells Christian ministers, perform same-sex weddings or face jail fines. Officials threaten to punish senior citizen couple, both ordained pastors, if they decline to officiate same-sex ceremonies. It's coming. Military bans Bibles, but forces soldiers to adhere to Ramadan rules. The U.S. Air Force kicked Christian Gideon's volunteers off base in March. The Bibles were too offensive and violated the separation of church and state rule, but U.S. military personnel are expected to adhere to Islamic practices during Ramadan. Cannot make this stuff up. Another one. U.S. Army defines, defines Christian ministry as domestic hate group. Several dozen U.S. Army active duty and reserve troops were told last week that the American Family Association, a well-respected Christian ministry, should be classified as a domestic hate group because the group advocates for traditional family values. I am telling you, the Philistines are mounting. 
They are mounting up. They are amassing their armies. And the believers in this nation are about to be tested to a degree that they have never been tested before. The question is, is how are you going to respond? Will, will you wait upon the Lord? In other words, will you keep his commandments or will you compromise the faith? That's the question. Will you do as Saul did, who compromised? He didn't wait for the Lord. He didn't hold the line. What did he do? Think about what Saul did. He did what was right in his own heart. He wasn't out denying the God of Israel. He was out honoring him according to his own heart to the detriment of the commandment. Look at what it said. The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered burnt offering. You know, Saul is presented here just in this verse. If we just to look at this, he's concerned with honoring the Lord. This is the whole reason Saul went to offer sacrifice. Did he offer sacrifice to Molech or to Baal? He did not. He offered sacrifice to the God of Israel. You look at this with your eyes in your heart and you see everything is fine. It looks good until you put the word of the Lord up against it. You put the word of the Lord up against it. It looks terrifying. It looks horrible. The problem with what Saul did is obeying the dictates of his own heart. It was to the detriment of being obedient to God. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. For Saul, sacrificing to the Lord, it seemed to be the right thing to do. It did. The reality, it was the way of death. Try to wrap your mind around that. That a man can go forth, you can seek to honor the Lord, only to find that your actions are totally in vain, and they're actually going to cause your death and your separation from God, the God who created you. If this doesn't put the fear of God into your heart, I don't know what would. We find in this story that Saul, he allowed the world, he allowed the things in the world, certain events, the actions of other people to interpret, catch this, to interpret how he should honor God. You read the story, and again I say we have to ask ourselves, are we going to allow the fears of this world to dictate our worship? To the creator, our obedience to God. Because I can tell you one thing, if you allow the fear of this world to influence your decisions, how you're going to worship God, how you're going to approach God, the end is death. This is how careful our walk must be. I wonder how many sheep in the church today, if we can even count them, have fallen victim to the reasoning, to the fears, to the pressures that King Saul faced and faltered in. I wonder how many are under the impression or under the state of delusion, I guess you could say, that they're in grace, that they're under grace, and that their lives are pleasing to the Lord's, the choices they're making, they're honorable to the Lord, yet in all reality, they've already willingly compromised the commandments of God. They did it to the detriment of the commandments of the Lord. 
Charles Spurgeon, going back to the 1800s, you know I like to quote him, this fiery hell fire Baptist preacher. You read his writings. Go back to the 1800s, and what's amazing is what you will find is Spurgeon saw this happening. The stuff we're talking about, where you literally have the shepherds handing out, doling out the blue pills. They're doling out the blue pills by the masses. Believe whatever you want to believe. Just confess Jesus as Lord. It doesn't matter. You have, uh, uh, you have professors, and I, this is not hyperbole, and I'm not making this up. You have professors sitting in their classrooms, not all, so I don't want all professors to get upset with me, but you have professors sitting in seminaries today asking their students, how did you interpret that passage? And coming out with multiple different interpretations and then him telling them that, well, none of you are right and none of you are wrong. Truth apparently is now subjective. I'm going to tell you something. Way back in the 1800s, Spurgeon saw this. He saw this atrocity creeping into the church. He saw this false sense of security creeping in to the church. And he offers us some very good advice. Listen to what he says. If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will, but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumptions. But it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Who talks like this today. You can't talk like this. We live in a culture that's PC. You can't even consider it. No, no, no. Everybody says it's all fine. We don't offend anybody. Praise the Lord for Charles Spurgeon and some of the things that he has said. We are not to pamper the presumptions. This is our duty. It's our call to duty to stand for truth. As the elect of God, this is the time to stand. Make the stand. It's like drawing, I always say, it's like drawing a line in the sand. Yeshua has drawn the line in the sand. All who are on the Lord's side, come to me. This is the time to do it. It's the day to do it. If you're not, if Yeshua is not the Lord of your life and you're not walking with him and you know that darkness has crept into your heart and it is leading you and Satan is pulling you on strings like a little puppet, don't leave today without repenting. Don't leave today by turning your heart back to Yeshua. It's the beautiful gospel message. There is forgiveness of sins. That's what we trust in. But let him fill your heart with his Holy Spirit. And you will desire the good things, the righteous things. You will love those things. And you will despise the filthy things you have done in your life. It's beautiful. It's salvation. It's eternal life. Getting back to our story, I want to show you how Samuel responds to King Saul's actions of taking the liberty of deciding to sacrifice the Lord according to his own heart. This is what uh, Samuel does. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Let me tell you something. You do not want to hear these words from a man of God. You do not want to hear these words from a prophet. It's the last thing you want to hear. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. What was the problem? What was at stake? It was the commandment of the Lord. The commandment of the living God. 
which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You need to see the, the spiritual inference here. To keep the commandment of God results in eternal life. Being eternally established. The rich young man in Matthew 19, he comes up to Yeshua. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Million dollar question. It's very simple. Yeshua responds to him, keep the commandments. Isn't that fascinating? Keep the commandments. Hold the line. Wait for the Lord. He goes on in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. <laughs> the moral of the, the story, don't get caught in following or worshiping God according to your own heart, how you think he should be worshipped. Don't you dare look at each other and look at other people and how they're worshipping as though that is going to set the precedence. And that having that false sense of security. You need to discover your relationship, your personal relationship with Yeshua. You don't live vicariously through other people. It will get you dead. Amen? I want to end today by taking you to the antithesis of what we just read. And I want to end today by taking you to the man whom Samuel just said, the Lord has sought for a man after his own heart. And that is King David. A man after the Lord's own heart. When I read to you this psalm, it will blow your mind because this psalm literally speaks directly to the situation of Saul. But what's interesting is David proclaims to handle it completely the opposite of what Saul did. Look at this psalm. Incredible. Psalm 27. A psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David is not going to be moved. It doesn't matter what's going on around him. He will not be moved because his trust is in the Lord. He is built on the rock. You think about Yeshua and what he says in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both soul and body in Gehenna. Yeshua's declaring, telling us, don't be moved. Don't allow the fears, like Saul, don't allow the fears of everything you see interrupt your relationship with me. Don't allow it to take you out. Don't compromise the commandments of God. Hold fast. This is the message. Jumping ahead to verse 3. Though an army, what happened in Saul's situation? The Philistines amassed an army. Though an army may encamp against, against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Where were David's eyes? His eyes were on the kingdom of heaven. They were on his king. Saul took his eyes from Shemaim and brought him down and started looking at everything else around him. And I'm telling you, if you do that, if you start looking at all the things that are happening in this country, 
Your future is Saul's. You better get your eyes, lift up your head, focus on your king, focus on your eternal redemption, your eternal inheritance. Because when you have your eyes affixed on Yeshua, you will not compromise. You won't make the wrong decision at that defining moment. You will honor God with your soul. This is what the calling is. This is what David understood. Going on to verse 13. I would have lost heart. This is one of my favorite psalms. I would have lost heart. David's just being open. He's being honest. Unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Look at that. He is saying, if I would have did what Saul did, I would have took down and I began to lost heart and I, and I took my eyes off of Shemayim, off of heaven and off of my king. That would have been the end of me. That would have been it. This is how important it is that you maintain connection to Yeshua. Keeping your eyes affixed on him because the world's going to take you out. It'll take you out the second you take your eyes off of him. And then he goes on to say, isn't this interesting? Can't make this up. Wait on the Lord. What didn't Saul do? He did not wait on the Lord. David cries out, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. I proclaim this message to you. The things that are coming upon this nation and the things that are happening in the world and the horrible atrocities that have been committed against Israel, where all its enemies are amassing against the Jewish people, understand something. Be of good courage because the king of Israel is coming back. Our inheritance is in him. He will bring us to safety, and he is going to give us shalom. I want to close with this verse, because I want to be very clear about what waiting on the Lord is. Over and over again, I hope you picked up on it. It is keeping the commandments of God. Psalm 37, verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way. You have any question about what? The, 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 the waiting on the Lord is, it is to keep His commandments, His ways. What is His ways? Going back to Psalm 103. I made my ways known to Moses. It's Torah. It's the Decalogue. It's the Ten Commandments. The Yasseret HaDevarim. This is what we've been called to hold fast to. It's what we must cling to at all costs. Keep His way and He shall exalt you to inherit the land. These are the very words Yeshua spoke to the rich young man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. Same words. He shall exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off and you shall see it.